You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Show. I hope these talks give you a little bit of inspiration to keep practicing and make your world a better place. Yoga is more than just a physical practice. It's a lifelong spiritual journey and we constantly need sustenance to help us stay on the path. So I hope you find that sustenance right here. And I look forward to seeing you on the mat. Now, there are many different forms of what you could call meditation, contemplation, even prayer. However, we are doing a very specific type of meditation practice. And it is my belief that all of the meditation practices and contemplation practices and even prayer practices that are most useful to the liberation of the mind begin with the foundation of stillness of some type. And that if you do not enter a state of stillness, some sort of stillness of the mind, then any effort that you make in the meditative space seems to be connected too much into the inertia of all of our past conditions and patterns. So many people these days, and I think always, want a little bit the fast track to the results, you know? Any results we're interested in, we're people, myself included, are often very interested in the fast track. How can I get there very, very quickly? So how can I get to the state of peace? How can I get to the state of success? How can I get to the end result where my mind is totally calm? Everything, what is, how can I get there very, very quickly? Well, if you do not put in the basic foundational work of the mindfulness, meaning coming to a stillness. For other practices, you could say that create the stillness. We are doing anapanasati, but the anapana is not the important part. The sati is the important part. Sati is the Pali word for mindfulness or awareness. Sati has the cognate word with smrti in Sanskrit. Smrti is often translated into English as a memory. However, Sati, as it was taught by the Buddha, is the state of mindfulness, the state of awareness, pure awareness, pure awareness, which means awareness without judgment, awareness without the patterns of the past and without reactivity. So to begin any any work along the path of spiritual realization, it is my belief and my experience that the would-be practitioner or the spiritual aspirant or student ideally starts with some practices that cultivate the state of sati, the state of stillness, meditative mind. If you jump too quickly into the other types of meditation, what can happen is that instead of deprogramming the past, we end up reprogramming the past and actually deepening what are called in the Sanskrit and the Pali as the samskaras. The sankaras, the samskaras, same word, basically. So unless you put in the effort 
to really create this vast open field of the mind. Then the efforts that are made in other types of contemplation, you could even say prayer, you know, visualization, work in affirmations, these sorts of things are less effective. Here's an example. Many people sometimes begin to do work in practicing to say positive affirmations, to look in the mirror and say things like, I love myself, I love myself, I love myself. Look in the mirror, I love you, I love you, I love you. Very wonderful practice. However, if this is the only practice you do to train the mind, those three words said a couple of times in the mirror will not penetrate deeply into the root of the mind. If at the root level of the mind, there are still seeds of negativity, still roots of self-hatred, self-rejection, self-directed negativity of one form or another, then these superficial words give some relief only for a very short period of time while they're being said in the forefront of the conscious mind. But to make a long-lasting impact on the quality of life, that root level of the mind must be adjusted and addressed. So this is why I think it's very, very useful for all spiritual practitioners to engage in some form of sati practice, some form of mindfulness practice. Then the way that the meditation tradition and really the entire spiritual path is working is like this. First, the student says, to all of you who are joining, anyone who comes on to meditation, any class or yoga class or some other spiritual class, at some moment, especially if it's a spiritual oriented class, not just something we're attracted to for some physical benefit. But if you have said in your heart, I'm joining this for a spiritual benefit, if you have said that in your heart, then you, like me and every other person that has that intention in our heart, I'm joining this for a spiritual benefit. I want to understand how to live a more peaceful life. I want to become happier, more joyful. I want to come out of the suffering of my mind and move into a more peaceful state. That is the intention. Then every student who is on the path becomes two things. First, a seeker. And this is what it means to be a spiritual seeker, to seek, right? So, you know, the very famous statement from, uh, from Jesus in the Bible, seek and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. But what do you seek? That you will find. So when you become a seeker, it is the idea is that you should become a spiritual seeker. Okay, if you seek one thing or another, you find it, maybe that's a problem. But on the spiritual path, if you seek with that intention, then it says a spiritual seeker. You become more than just an enthusiast about yoga, an enthusiast about meditation. Now you're on the path, it is said. You're a seeker on the path. You're on the seeker's journey. This is the first thing. Second thing is that at some moment, something in your life or in your heart has seen through the illusion or delusion of what you could call the world. And the way that this is presented is that we have all, all seekers on the path have at some moment or another suffered enough in the material world to recognize the basic truth of suffering. That sooner or later on this plane, this earthly plane, this third dimensional plane that we are inhabiting now on this plane of existence, that here we are in this human form, that there is suffering. We will suffer. 
sickness and is inevitable. And every spiritual seeker has had that realization and has understood for themselves directly through direct experience that no permanent happiness can come from the material world. And when you realize that for yourself, you have taken the first step on the path. These two things are present in every, in every sincere spiritual practitioner. And this is why the path begins with sati, with awareness. So if we immediately jump into, okay, I'm suffering. How can I become happy? Oh, well, you must understand first, what is the nature of suffering? What is the nature of the old habit pattern of the mind? What is the architecture which has created this whole framework, which I live in now? How can I create a new framework if I still have this old architecture? First, that old architecture must be demolished. Then only I can build a new structure. So we can think of this asati as preparing for the journey. The tool of equanimity is very important. You do not need to be equanimous from the beginning. This is very important for every student to understand. Some people think, oh, I cannot meditate. Why can you not meditate? Oh, because I have so many thoughts in my mind. I'm so reactive. Everything I react. Wonderful. Meditation is for you, my friend. You will benefit the most from meditation. Who, if you're already totally peaceful and non-reactive, hmm, why do you need to meditate? Then you can just sit there in your peace. But all of us, we're here, so reactive. Everything happens. We react to this. We react to that. So much reactivity is there. Some sound is coming. We hate the sound. We love the sound. We're so reactive. You know, some itch is arising in the body. We hate the itch. We scratch the itch so vigorously that we produce blood out of our skin. I don't know if any of you have ever tried this. This happens very often with the itches that arise from the bite of a small bug called a mosquito. If you have some itch like this, even in the sleep, you can be scratching this with such vigorousness that you wake up and you're bleeding and have various wounds of your own self-infliction. I have also tried this. You know, Even mosquitoes, they bite me too. Not so often, to be honest with you. Don't be mad at me. They really like my husband. They eat him alive. So then he takes some sacrifice for me. <laughs> so if we think about uh, these itchy sensations, itchy sensations, we react so strongly to this. We have sounds that distract us. We're reacting, reacting. Now, the best benefit that you can take from meditation is to retrain the habit pattern of the mind. So you must train in equanimity. You must train in sati. Sati is the training of equanimity. You don't need to be equanimous from the beginning. You have to train. And it feels very strange to try to reshape the fabric of the mind. But each time you notice, I'm reacting to this, you come back to the breath. You have now started to put a little hammer in the architecture of suffering, the architecture of reactivity. You have started to demolish a little bit that old structure, the palace of pain that exists within the fabric of the mind. We've started to take a little hammer to that. Unfortunately, this is a mighty palace. This is not a little anthill we can just step on. We need to spend a long time hammering it away, hammering away, hammering away. And even when you think it's all gone, then still some little room over there you forgot about. And it's somehow constant work, at least in this lifetime, has been for me. So this is the beginning sati. What happens after sati? Preparing for the journey, preparing for the journey, preparing for the journey. Only when the mind has reached this state of clarity. And it is said that within five minutes, you can experience a qualitative shift in the mind. I would imagine that each of you has experienced that. And it is also said statistically, scientifically, not only you know, conjecture, but also statistically and scientifically, it has been shown that after 20 minutes, 
there's a measurable change in the brain waves. There's a measurable change in the activity of the brain that can actually be documented in the scan of the brain. 20 minutes. So we can say that there's 20 minutes as a minimum to reach a kind of calming down. Five minutes of change is happening. It's minimum amount of time that can qualify as a meditation practice, or some spiritual practice, even yoga practice. Five minutes. Five minutes, minimum amount of time. 20 minutes. And now you're starting to touch. Mm-hmm. Then to reach, now going beyond the foundational work, going beyond the foundational work, now it is said that at about the 40-minute mark, when we begun to continuously work in a state of introspection, having achieved the state of sati, mindfulness, now we can penetrate deeply down into the root level of the mind. And now we are deeply on the path. This sounds like exciting, maybe, but I will tell you that when you reach that level, it is not very fun. There's a lot of obstacles at the root of the mind. It's, oh, I want to penetrate my mind and go deep into the inner layers. It sounds exciting. I'm going to, like some adventure, you know, you sound like you're Frodo and you've been given the ring. Here you go. But you know what happened to Frodo when he got the ring? Yes, there was a lot of fun, you know, but it was mostly running away from nasty creatures, fighting nasty creatures, right? At some moment, he needed to befriend one nasty creature to complete the journey. And that is very, a, a very... Um, a good metaphor for the spiritual path. You know, we're excited. Oh, I want to go. Give it to me. I want to go. I'm going to penetrate the root of the mind. Let me take care. I'm going to do this. And then we immediately face one demon after another, one obstacle after another, one test after another. Until, and we run until we realize, oh, I need to befriend this, uh, this being in order to complete the journey. I must befriend that demon. I must befriend the dragon. I don't need to slay the dragon. That dragon is me. So now we are on the path. And this path, this work of the path is very deep, very difficult. Not many people go into this space. The contemporary terminology for this is uh, what people uh, these days are calling the shadow work, the shadow work. When you you are able to look into your shadows and you don't run away from your shadows, your obstacles, the knots, which are tied up in the root of the mind, the architecture of suffering, which is built within your unique system. When you're able to be strong enough, bold enough, brave enough, you could say, to dive into that and start to hammer it away, do all the work of hammering. Unfortunately, not only are you involved in the uh, demolishing of the architecture of suffering, but there is even yet more suffering while that architecture is being demolished because of one very problematic feature of the mind. And this is called the misidentification of the notion of I. Every person, myself included, we are identified in some form or another with our patterns. So we identify with the structure which is being demolished. And we feel so much loss. Oh, so much loss. Because we think I am destroying myself here. I am being harmed. I have to give up this. I have to give up that. I have to stop acting like this. I, I, I. And it is not I. It is just some remnant of the past, some old habit pattern of the past, some architecture of thinking, some habit pattern deeply ingrained in the body and in the mind. So we have identified so strongly with that. So we suffer. Even though we want it to be gone, we still suffer because we have misidentified what is I? What is I? What is I? Not I. 
this is so much of the teaching. They are not that. Oh, I'm not my habit patterns. Oh, I'm not my thoughts. Oh, I'm not my emotions. Oh, I'm not my body. Oh, but what am I then? Well, you have to practice and experience. Once you penetrate the root of the mind and move through the old habit patterns, at some moment, you don't know when, that truth of who you are will be revealed. You'll experience it. Now we consider to be on the part two, where now we've not only prepared for the path, we are on the path. We're working. We're doing the work. We're fighting the demons, making friends with the demons, slaying the dragon, making friends with the dragon, doing this, doing that, interacting with our shadows, moving through dark nights of the soul, these sorts of things. We're on the path. If you're not going to do the work of the path, the spiritual practice will be a dead end. We must take the tool of sati and do the work and dive in. Otherwise, if we only cultivate equanimity, only cultivate I'm aware, I'm aware, I'm aware, but if we're not willing to be aware of our own shadows, our own suffering, how we contribute to our own suffering, how we are the source of our own pain, then the, the spiritual practice will be a dead end. We will not be liberated. In fact, it will become another chain because we can, we can float in a false bubble of positivity you know, and simply say, I am just aware. And then instead of actual awareness rooted to the work of the spiritual path, then that awareness can present as apathy or as disconnection rather than as connection and deep work. So we have to be prepared to do the work. You could consider this to be part two. Many students, they hear this and they think, oh no, what have I signed up for? I didn't realize this was all going to happen. This sounds like really a lot. It just looked peaceful when people were sitting there. You know, it looked like, you know, yoga was fun, maybe. You know, I didn't realize I need to go on a personal journey into the root of the mind. This sounds like a brain surgery. I don't really want to have brain surgery. I kind of, my brain seems to be quite fine. But remember, there is some calling within you. So if you have said, oh, I want to do spiritual practice, that calling is within you. That seed has been sprouted, activated, you could say. So there's no going back. You know, even if you try to go back, you cannot go back. Sooner or later, it comes back, that spiritual activation. Once started, sooner or later, will take root and begin to sprout and grow and bear the seeds, which is good news for you. Could be a long time if you're fighting against it, you know, if you're fighting against it, resisting it. But once it's activated, it's anyhow going to keep going, 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 going. Mm -hmm. So what is the third stage? Well, the third stage is the place where almost everybody wants to skip the sati, skip the work of the path, skip the hard work, and then move immediately into what? Metta. Oh, just let me do the visualizations. Just let me do positive visualizations. Just let me think of love. I want to send love, love this person, love that person, love myself. Only I love, 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 love. We want to be like a love bug, right? So you can be the love bug, not a problem. But if you would truly become the love bug, then you have to remove everything that may kill that love bug. So right now we have the architecture of suffering inside the mind. Then you think, oh, I'm the love bug. Oh no. Then the love bug is there for a moment, but it gets squashed in the next moment. Then you're a hate bug. Immediately you hate. Then you move from love into hate. You squashed me. I hate you. Now I'm squashed. I hate you. I was a love bug. You have disturbed me. How many times have you thought that? Oh, I've been in such a peaceful state, so wonderful, wonderful. I love the world. Somebody does something annoying. You hate that person. You hate them double because first they were annoying. So they are now one level hatred. Second level hatred. 
you've stolen my love state. You extra nasty person. I was in this peaceful, harmonious state and because of you. No, no, this is another architecture of suffering. This is not because of that person. Yes, they have done something which you have registered based on your habit pattern of the mind as annoying. You have reacted double. So there was a double reaction. That double reaction is not that person, though they may actually, in fact, be worthy of the designation of annoying. Then nevertheless, your reaction is your own. You are the source of your own suffering in that way. So especially when you make it double, you're not only mad at them for being annoying, but then you're extra mad at them for stealing your love. Nobody can steal that from you, except you can lose it because we have not done enough cleaning. The architecture of suffering is still there and you can walk back into that building at any moment. So the state of metta is best done when, if you can imagine, that the complete structure of suffering is gone. If there is a vast structure, a palace of suffering, when the new structure of metta, the positive visualizations, the state of love and kindness, this is best built on the empty ground or in the classic uh, presentation of um, the, the preparation for the spiritual path from the Zen Buddhist tradition, we must empty the cup of muddy water before we can make a space for the pure, clean water to be poured in. If you pour that pour, pure, clean water directly into the cup of mud, just you will muddy both the pure water and the mud, generating only more mud, more suffering, more mud. Mm -hmm. Now, nothing wrong with the mud. We must sit with it and work with it so we can clean it and clean that cup out. We, we purify and we, we, we destroy that architecture of suffering. We remove that building, that palace of suffering until it's flattened and all traces of it are gone so that then we can, in the clear ground, build the new structure, the new structure rooted in love, rooted in kindness, so we can experience that state of metta. But remember, if you do not do the first two deep parts of the spiritual practice, and you only skip immediately towards visualization, affirmation, think only of love, think only of love, that's like trying to build a floor, only one floor on a vast palace, that has love, but well, still only one floor. If there are 35 stories in the palace of suffering and you build 36th floor and it's like a penthouse of love, then only some very few rich patrons get to visit that penthouse. And then every other circumstance in your life filled with suffering. So we cannot make only a penthouse an exclusive love floor only available for some very elite few interactions. The work of the spiritual path is to demolish over many years of practice the architecture of suffering and build you know, a, a palace of love that's welcoming for all. This is the path that we are on. Mm -hmm. Now I will check out some questions that have come in. Thank you for adding the questions in. I appreciate that. So a very simple practical question. What is the hand position in the meditation? Mm. Hand position in the meditation, whenever you're sitting, is any hand position that you like. We can get caught a little bit in assuming that some one hand position is more spiritual than another. Any hand position that's comfortable for you, you can take that hand position. It's probably not recommended to try to do any mudras or any particular 
you know, fancy hand positions during meditation. You can take palms up, you can take palms down, you can take hands together, you can take hands open, you can interlock fingers, these sorts of things. However, I really recommend some hand position that will not cause too much of pain. Sometimes if I interlock my fingers, then the fingers seem to become very heavy and seem to crush themselves under their own weight. So I don't really like to go into this position just because I'm not comfortable there. Other people, they sit like that. They don't have pain. You have to find a comfortable hand position. Hmm. When you're finished with your meditation practice or your yoga practice, it is usually traditional to take some bow of some form. Now, what are you bowing towards? First of all, the bow is the traditional gesture of thankfulness in the spiritual traditions of the East. So when we bow, we're saying thank you because we just realized, oh, I have benefited from this practice. So thank you. I am gratitude. Let me express my gratitude for this practice. So I realized that oh, I have benefited from this practice. And in the act of bowing, we simply say thank you. Who we say thank you to? First of all, you can thank yourself. I'm thanking myself. Why I showed up. Look, I'm here. I did it. Out of the thousands of things I could do in this moment, I have done my spiritual practice. Thank you. Thank you, self. I honor myself. Then you thank your teacher. And not only your teacher, but the lineage of teachers. I thank every teacher that I have ever had. And I thank all the teachers of the whole world. I thank all the teachers. Because without these teachers, even ones I've never met, that I may benefit indirectly. Maybe I take a class with a teacher who studied with that teacher, even though I don't even know about that teacher. I have benefited from them. I thank that teacher. I thank all the teachers. Thousands of years ago, somebody was meditating. 2,000 years ago, the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree. Thank you, Buddha. Without Buddha... I would not have this meditation technique. Not that Buddha is a god. No, Buddha is a human being. Thank you, Buddha. Thousand, two thousand years ago, the Buddha said, I sit under this Bodhi tree until I am enlightened. Thank you, Buddha. Without that, I don't perceive this technique. But thank you. Thank you. All these yogis sitting in caves, devoting the life, renunciate lives, renounce their lives, sat in caves, putting the leg behind the head and doing breathing exercises, sitting for long meditation. Oh, thank you, all these yogis. Thank you. Thank you. They were not for you. I would not be here today. Thank you. Oh, wonderful. 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 How can you not feel so much gratitude when you really think about this? So thank you. The simple act of bowing humility. Even if you just bow the head, this is enough. I want to bow fully down. It doesn't matter. The idea is the act of thank you in the heart. Of course, if you feel the connection to a supreme being, you feel connection to God. Also, you can thank God you know, for the opportunity to be here to do this practice, to feel the love for the blessing of life, life. You know, you don't have some relationship with supreme being. Just thank you for life. I'm alive. Thank you, life. This is enough. Something like that. This can be very, very, very useful. Hmm. So the next question is about, can you tell again, can I say again, what you said during the meditation about the past and thoughts from the past? Well, this is a very good question. So. It is said, not by me and not by, you know, just random people, but by actual scientists who've studied the brain. So, you know, real neuroscientists, so not me, but I have read their studies. Then the, 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 it has been shown by contemporary neuroscience that by the time a person is 35 years old, 95% of our thinking is habituated and routinized and rooted in the past. So that's pretty astounding. 95% of our thinking is not spontaneous, right? rooted in the past. Maybe actually the percentage even higher than that. So when we think about this, wow, 
Okay, so now in the time of the Buddha, there was the word for this called the samskara. The samskara is the residue left in the field of the mind based on some experience that has been happened in the past. That residue has left uh, its imprint in the field of the mind. And having that residue left in the field of the mind, that residue naturally attracts a circumstance which is very similar to the original past circumstance. Then again, the same experience happens and the residue or the imprint gets deeper in the program of the mind. And then again, it repeats, again, it repeats, again, it repeats. We call it very deep samskara, very deep habit pattern of the mind. And this also, the neuroscientists have been able to see that when you think a thought over and over again, when you react over and over again, it becomes easier for you to go down that road over and over again. That the mind itself, if you have some reaction pattern of negativity, of anger, you have so much anger, you repeat anger, 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 then the mind is so used to the angry state that the nerves are, are, are the nerves grow a very deep groove in the biology of the brain. So that it becomes easier to get angry faster. And the habit pattern of the mind is so used to the state of anger, it becomes addicted in some ways to anger. It's, it's yearning for the next thing to become angry about. So we can do this with the samskaras. We can see this. Our old habit patterns, uh, the, the, the past creates the future. And we end up in this cycle. That's a repetitive cycle. So when we come back to the present, we move into non-reactivity, pure mindfulness, pure awareness, and we face those samskaras, we can lessen the inertia of the past and slowly come back to the present moment. And in the present moment, this is where we can make peace with what is and lessen the inertia of the past. And this is what I mean by breaking down the architecture of suffering, to change the biology of the brain and to change the reaction pattern of our very being requires great effort and great work and can only really be done with a balanced mind, a mind filled with equanimity. If we try to fight the mind, if we try to fight with ourselves, then we generate more aggression, more suffering, more pain. So we have to work with a balanced, calm mind. Now we will move on to the next question. Let's see. I sometimes have trouble focusing on my breath as it's difficult to feel it. However, I sometimes feel it's easier to focus on some small groupings of multicolored dots that appear. Is it unadvisable to focus on this or another image? This is a very good question. So the state of sati is the state of pure awareness, pure awareness. There are various anchors of mindfulness that come from different traditions. It is traditionally said that if a student has a hard time feeling the reality of the breath as it moves in and out, that there is some detachment from body and mind. So sometimes the students who report being very connected to images, but unable to be connected to the reality of the breath that there is some detachment between body and mind, some disembodiment, some attraction towards like what you could say, the sixth chakra sort of work, the third eye sort of work, the higher vibrations of the upper chakras 
without a link or a root into the grounded work of the integrated work of kind of the whole being. So it's not bad that you're seeing the tiny multicolored dots. This is fine. They can be there. Let them be there. Don't give them any importance. Let them be there. Don't react to them. Don't crave them. Don't do anything with them. Let them be there. And those of you who don't see multicolored dots, for example, I don't see multicolored dots. Don't think now I need to go and find multicolored dots. There's nothing about multicolored dots or any other thing. So the technique of sati is aware of something, is awareness, but very specific type of awareness. Some awareness that is rooted in the actual experiential state of reality as it is. The tactile sensory connection into reality. So we are trying to bring body and mind into unity. So my advice to you is that if you have a hard time focusing on the breath, then you can use just for now, just for now, few intentional breaths. So you can consciously, little if you can't, if only, only you can focus on these images that come up, dots are arising and you just focus on dots, the red dot, yellow dot, all these dots, very, and your mind's getting very attracted to that. You cannot feel breath anymore. Then little bit conscious breath, few of those. Then really locate, where do I feel the breath? Few of those. If it makes your nose itch, but it's okay. Then you just have, then something you can feel. Oh, I'm breathing in. Now I feel itchy sensation. Ah, powerful itch. Great. I have something to hold on to. Itchy sensation, itchy sensation, itchy sensation. Great. Wonderful. Feel itch. Now, after a few conscious breaths, try to let it go and see if you can stay focused on the subtle breath. Mm-hmm. If this doesn't work, then you need to unify a verbal anchor with the breath to create a dual focus. So you can say in as you breathe in, out as you breathe out. If yet still that doesn't work and you still find when you breathe, when you say this, the mind is still gone, then you can use numbers and numbers are very analytical and can help increase the focus. You can say 10 in, 10 out, but focus on the actuality of the breath, nine in, nine out. And you can be conscious during those 10 breaths at the end. You reach one in, one out, let go of the numbers and try again just to feel the breath and whatever sensations are in the small area of attention, repeat again, repeat again. This is humble work, but it's very, very useful. So keep practicing. Now we have another question. So this is a question about the teacher-student relationship. Now the student, uh, I have an itch on my nose after the last talk about itching on the nose. So now the question about the teacher-student relationship. So now uh, I'm so lucky to have a fantastic teacher. However, in August, I'm moving away. How will I maintain my yoga practice, seeing my teacher less often? Can you share your experience and advice? It feels like a loss. Mm-hmm. I understand. Very difficult to be the student without the teacher, right? Very difficult. How can you be the student without the teacher? You know, then you have to go on your own. You say, oh no, I'm on my own. Where's my teacher? So we can have a remote relationship with the teacher. When you cannot practice with the teacher every day, you have to keep some connection to the teacher every day in your practice. Whether you join the online class, whether you join the virtual class, this is a good connection. However, you can also do something like this. You can make a plan to go and visit the teacher. So, okay, I'm going to be on my own, practicing only with online support for two, three months, maybe six months, maybe even one year. Then after that one year, I make a plan. I'm going to go practice with the teacher again. This is a good thing to do. This is what I did. I would go to India and practice with my teachers. 
for one month, two months, sometimes six months if I was so lucky. Then I would come back to the US, practice on my own and save up my money, then spend all my money on the airplane ticket and six months in India. And then I would be with the teacher and then the money is finished, the visa is finished, go home again, take practice, save all my money and again, go back to India. And I repeated this cycle for many, many years. I still am repeating the cycle. However, um, I cannot go this year because of the life circumstance of the world. So I'm, I am also missing my teacher. And I'm so thankful for the online classes that allow me to connect with my teacher and allow me to connect with various uh, teachings. So it's a difficult path, but make the focus to see your teacher again. And then at the same time, keep your connection to the practice as much as possible. So now there's a question about sleepiness. Is it okay if we feel sleepiness at some point? And the follow-up question, should we fixate on our third eye during the meditation? Okay, this is a two-part question. First of all, everybody feels the sleepy. There's two reasons for sleepiness. Number one, you're tired, right? If you're tired, you did not sleep well at night, very, very sleepy, then immediately you meditate. Immediately you want to sleep. There is no solution for this except to sleep. You must sleep. You take a little nap. It's okay. Not a problem. I have joined one meditation retreat in a very bad state once. I've joined one meditation retreat coming directly back from Asia with the intense jet lag. This was the worst meditation retreat. I have slept through the meditation retreat because I would, I would be immediately go to take sitting and our eyes would close and the room was very dimly lit also. So it was a very dimly lit room. I felt I've entered the womb and then I'm going to sleep. Then I just, I was, I, at some moment I was snoring in the meditation hall. It was very embarrassing. I didn't realize I had the capacity to snore in public. It was very embarrassing. I had to wake up. Oh, and not only am I sleeping, I'm disturbing other people with my sleep. This is so embarrassing. So then after some days, I try, I'm trying to fight this battle against the sleep. I slept very well at night, but I just was also sleeping the whole day. This is the jet lag. Normally, sometimes people have the jet lag, cannot sleep at night. For me, I had to, I just want to sleep all day. So then... Uh, the meditation retreat, they wake you up very early in the morning, four in the morning, they're waking you up. Ah, also, okay. Then after some days of sleeping through the whole day, then I have slept through 4 a.m. I don't hear anything going on. 4.30 again, they make some sounds to try to wake you up. Then again at six, they make some sounds. I don't hear any of this. 6.30 again, they make sounds. They're serving breakfast. They're making sounds. I'm sleeping, sleeping, sleeping. Then again at the seven, they make a sound. I don't hear any of this. Then at like eight o'clock, then they make a sound. Then I hear like a slight ding as though from another dimension. And I actually have the thought, oh no, what has happened? Where am I? And I don't know where I am. And I realized I have overslept by four and a half hours. So then I felt very awake immediately. I woke up to join the meditation. I have a wonderful meditation. I do not sleep. I am very awake. There's no more snoring. So I really understood at that moment, if you're very, very tired, you must sleep. You cannot fight that demon. You have to sleep a little bit. If the, you know, we need not hours and hours and hours of sleep, but enough sleep to sustain yourself. Okay. Then the second reason, say you're very, very rested. You sleep nine hours in the night. But the moment you take meditation, sleeping, right? Then you wake up filled with energy, you know, filled with energy. Close your eyes, fall asleep. Open your eyes, want to run a marathon. So much energy. Close your eyes, immediate sleep. This is not the sleepiness. This is the mind's inability to sustain a thoughtless, wordless state for a period of time. If such a thing happens, then, then you really have to battle this because you have to get comfortable with the space between your thoughts and you have to get comfortable 
with the space, with the sort of bridge between conscious and subconscious mind and sit in the in-between space. This is very, very difficult, but it can be done. So you want to look for the moment right before you fall asleep and then sustain that. Don't do this before you sleep at night. Let yourself sleep at night. It's only for the meditation. Mm -hmm. Okay, we will continue with any other questions that are here. Let's see. During meta meditation, if the visualization comes by itself, shall the seeker just accept it without any effort? Is it normal part of the process of the practice? Oh, yes. So let's talk about this. I also forgot to talk about the third eye. You do not need to have uh, focus on the third eye during the Anapanasati or in the work of the journey of the practice. There are some meditations, uh, in particular, sorry, there are some visualizations which is in the realm of metta, when we're using the creative capacity of the mind, where it can be useful to bring your mind to rest at a specific point. But during anapanasati, absolutely not. You're focusing on the breath, so you should focus on the breath. This triangular area of attention inside the nostrils, around the rim of the nostrils, on the nose and on the upper lip, only there. That's all. During metta, if you see images during metta, let them come. Now we move into the creative visualization. You know, so if you're there and you're recalling the memory or, or, or visualizing the image of what we call a dear one, someone you want to send love to, and you see there, you see an image of them, let it be there. If you're sending love to all the kittens and cats of the world and you see a lot of cat images, let them be there. If you're seeing images of the world at peace, let them be there. This is part of meta. It's increasing the vibration of meta, increasing the vibration of meta within yourself. So definitely let them be there. If you experience lots of visualizations during metta, then this can actually strengthen the metta. But also if you're not somebody that visualizes and you just feel a lot of love, this is fine too. You can just vibrate. This is also okay. Mm -hmm. So we have another question about the dizziness. Is feeling dizzy normal during meditation? Make sure that there's not any other secondary reason for dizziness. So sometimes if we have not eaten properly, we can feel very dizzy. We don't have enough water, we also can feel very dizzy. So if you've taken care of the basic needs of sustenance, then make sure that that's there. Then otherwise, you might experience dizziness or any other sensation, and you just observe. Sometimes people feel this gyrating thing. We feel we're gyrating, going round in a circle. Totally fine. Just observe. Oh, I'm gyrating. And then don't pay any attention to it. If you feel a little dizzy and you feel that you know, you're imbalanced, you can open the eyes for a moment and just look around, get your spatial orientation situated again, and then close the eyes. And again, you feel, oh, I'm losing it. See if you can just you know, be with the sensation and check in. Is there any danger? Am I going to potentially um, fall over? You know, Usually don't fall over in meditation. Also, you're quite close to the ground as long as you're seated. You're not seated on a chair. If you're seated on a chair, you start to feel dizzy. Take care. Don't fall out of the chair. Okay? So if you're close to the ground, usually what happens? If we get tired, we get a little dizzy. Worst thing that happens, we bend a little forward. Oh, we will wake ourselves up, catch ourselves. However, the dizziness, open the eyes, especially if it starts to be spinning like vertigo. Then just open the eyes, spatial orientation. I'm on the ground. Everything is good. Close the eyes again. That doesn't work. Stand up for a moment. Straighten your legs. Push a little blood and circulation through your legs. Sit back down. Obviously, slowly, if you're feeling dizzy, you don't want to, that'll, that'll make you dizzy by itself. You pop up and pop down. So stand up slowly. So go down slowly and then again sit. So we can just work with that a little bit. So now we're going to take maybe one last question and then we'll wrap up for today. I think we've gone very far over the time. 
Um, so one last question. Uh, can meditation be done while lying down or is it more beneficial when the spine is straight? Very, very good practical question. The most deepest states of meditation uh, you will achieve when the spine is straight and you're in a seated position. However, that being said, if there's a lot of pain in the body or we're trying to move into a guided relaxation to give the body space to heal, then a reclining or lying down position is advised. So if we're looking for like the enlightenment superhighway, you want to try to remain in a seated position. However, sometimes we cannot go on the highway. We need to take the more scenic route. Then if we're on the scenic route and we need to give the body a little bit more time, the body is having a lot of pain or we're suffering for one reason or another. Maybe there's a sickness, a flu or something like that, or you have an injury, the foot is injured or something like this, then we should lie down. This is okay. If the body needs healing, the body needs to be rested. You can lie down, maintaining the state of mindfulness. This is okay too. All right. So both are good. However, why do we say that the deeper states of meditation we should not do while we're lying down? Because sleep is much more likely to happen to even the most diligent meditators when we are in the lying down position. It's just too much of a temptation to suddenly start snoring. So we want to remain seated, if at all possible. That seated position being as comfortable as you like. So we can do more sati and less of the snoring. Mm -hmm. Good. So thank you everyone for joining. I'm going to leave you with that message to close for today. And I will see you again. Uh, if you're coming for the immersion, then I see you tomorrow. If not, I, if you're coming to yoga drills, I'll see you on Wednesday. Remember this week coming forward, the yoga drills only half an hour because you have to do the immersion. Then if you come to the meditation again, I'll see you again next Sunday. I have a feeling the next Sunday, the time is different. Is that true? It is true, isn't it? The time is a little different next Sunday. I think so. I think the time next Sunday is three o'clock because we have one o'clock. We're filming the self shiatsu. I think so. Please check the schedule. So you can come next, next to Sunday. If you want to do them both, you can give yourself like a mini retreat and give yourself a mini massage and, and do some release. And then you'll be in a very relaxed state for the meditation. So please check the schedule and I'll see you next Sunday. I think at three o'clock. If not, then I'm sorry, but uh, then it's the next, next Sunday. So you can check it out. And let me know. Okay. Thanks everyone. Thank you so much. It means so much to me that you're a part of this Om Stars family. I love you all. Send you a lot of love and I'll see you real soon. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Yoga Inspiration Show. It's always a pleasure to share the inner space of the yoga journey with you. Remember, you can always find me online at omstars.com, www.omstars.com, and on my YouTube channel and all social media at Kino Yoga. I look forward to seeing you on the mat. And more than anything, I hope you take the inspiration to practice yoga and make your world a better place. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. 
So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.